0: Hello, and welcome to Bark's Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So, get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Bark's Remarks. I am, as always, Mark Severino, a grown man who enjoys duck comic books and has done so for a a very long time. And I'm joined by a returning guest. I'm very excited to have him back, so I'm going to let him reintroduce himself.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm Warren Harmon, another adult enthusiast of the Duck Stories and a, a longtime Carl Barks fan and also a Don Rosa fan. But I will have to say, I kind of tip my hat to Carl Barks for opening my eyes to a world that I had not ever imagined would exist uh, until I was a 10-year-old boy. So... Uh, As we talked before, Mark, uh, I'm a longtime collector, uh, reader of comic books, collector of lithographs, all things Donald Duck, to be honest with. Happy to be back and
0: going to enjoy this. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, we get to talk this time about Trail of the Unicorn, Warren. We were talking a little bit beforehand and, and you mentioned that you hadn't read this one in some time. Did, did this one kind of fall off your radar?
1: It did. I, I don't know why. Maybe it was, uh, I think a lot of it was just, it wasn't a cover call out, you know, in a Dell comic. And, and I, but I do know where it lives and, and was really happy to discover it again and, and really had to read it several times to really uncover what I thought were some interesting points we'll talk about and some very humorous points and some odd points, and I will just, we'll just wait. Uh, but I enjoyed reading it again. It's a 24-pager, but those are great stories as well. So, yeah, looking forward to talking about this with you and sharing our thoughts.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's a little bit shorter than the average. And, you know, it it had been a long time for me as well, and I think one of the things is that it's such an embarrassment of riches, you know, to reference one of the lithographs um, with the bark stories, right? Because there are so uh-huh. very many of them that like, it's easy to go a decade and, and be like, oh, yeah, I, I haven't read this one in so long. And exactly uh, like yeah, you say, it's it's a treat to revisit.
1: Yeah, it is a treat to revisit these stories that you knew about, you remember hearing about them, and then you remember a panel, which will come to it—the the infamous last panel. But uh, it was—it uh, was—it uh, it jarred a lot of memory.
0: Right, yeah. and 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 I think part of why I'm enjoying so much doing this podcast, you know, is that it's giving me this like systematic, enforced way to remember barks, and I've never I've never read them the way that I am doing it now, you know, in this mostly chronological manner. And I'm, I'm discovering new things about the stories because I never owned like the, the Karl Barks library, you know, I collected them as Gladstone and then Disney and gemstone printed them, um, radically out of order. So, so this has just been a fun way to kind of get, get an idea of what the the very old timers who were collecting them when they, when they came out, um, you know, in 1946, if you went down to the drugstore and bought it for a dime there like that's that's kind of what I'm doing and that's what what makes this so fun it does and
1: i, I wish I had been around as a 10 year old in 1946 to be able to go down there and with a pocket full of dimes buy mint copies and bag them and know what would they, <laughs> know what would happen in the future however uh, like you um discovering them and having this your podcast uh, unveil them in chronological order, as Barks wrote them and, and, and penned them, I, I think it's just great. And it gives me a chance to revisit them again, but also not just discovering the adventures for the second or third time, but really trying to get inside maybe Carl Barks' head to find out what he was thinking at the time, and then the cultural differences between today and yesterday. Just fascinating way to look at these stories in a different light.
0: For sure. I, I had such a good time uh, doing that last one we did where we talked about Luck of the North, and and I thought it worked out so well how we tag teamed those pages. I think that's a good way to do it when I have you and other longtime Barks fans. I love I love having those newbie hosts on as well. Um, but you know they're they're both good good models. So we're we're gonna do that again this okay. time. Um, really? There is a little bit of background to talk about before we we go into the story, um, Warren. If you have anything, feel free to chime in. But but I'm going to mention some of the basics about this. Again, uh, highlighting the title. This is Trail of the Unicorn, and you mentioned that it's not a story with an original Barks cover. That's because this was the the B story in um, our. Our last week's episode. I want to say, Land of the Totem Poles. Yeah, big value, right? Because this was the B story with uh, Land of the Totem Poles. And um, we, we are finally into the 1950s. That yeah. was as it was last episode. March of 1950 is the cover date. Uh, I think it would have been written into the late 40s still. Um, you mentioned that it's four-color Two sixty three. Maybe you didn't mention it, but it's. I didn't, it's, but it is two, four color two sixty three. Four right? color two sixty three. I found that this one has a, a surprisingly low number of reprints. Index listed only six printings for the U.S., including the original four color print.
1: Wow, well, I was unaware of that. I know I have probably in the Karl Barks Library. It's in the Fantagraphics book, of course, which I'm referencing today.
0: I read it in, in Gladstone. It was one of their first issues in. Yeah, uh, And I had a cool Don Yippus cover. I, I really um, enjoyed the the Yippis covers from that. Oh, yeah. So Warren, a little bit of fun background trivia, um, just some kind of observations that I'm making is that, to my memory, this is the first of several stories that are going to center in and around the Himalayas, right? I don't right. think I'm forgetting any. And, and Barks is going to have fun coming back to this part of the world for some pretty memorable stories later. This one is the second story that has both Scrooge and Gladstone in it that is like an adventure story. But it's really the first one where they kind of figure, both figure in it significantly, right? I think Scrooge was kind of a glorified cameo in Race to the South Seas. But interestingly, we don't see them interact, unless I'm forgetting.
1: No, we don't. In this story, we don't see Scrooge and Gladstone interact. But I still think Scrooge is used as a vehicle to steer the story and we'll we'll talk about that as we yeah he's, he's then, a very a minor character appears at the beginning at the end uh with all the scrooge uh elements of character that you would expect but in a minor role
0: yeah he kind of bookends it all right so warren we i, I really like to highlight some of the titles from around the world as you know because this this has such an international readership, um, and I've got to pander to those Scandinavians, right? I'm saying that lovingly. Um, so why don't you share with us one of those international titles?
1: Well, let's start with the German title, We uh, and, and and this is interesting. Uh, it translates as to the hunt for the one horn. Uh, and then I'm going to say it right here. If I don't do it right, you can re-edit. Die Haged auf den Einhorn.
0: So I, I'm not going to correct you at all, Warren, because part of the fun of it is get, is butchering it and getting it wrong. I think. Well, I don't want to offend anyone, but uh, <laughs> uh, I I uh, think uh, in German the J makes the the J sound, so
1: the the uh, jagd, jagd, the Jagd of das Einhorn, which is the one, one horned horse. I, I love that.
0: There you go. I I figure if we're making you know a good faith effort, I I had uh, precisely one and a half years of French, so I'll I'll take on France. We've got um, Donald Serle de la licorne. Mm. Yeah. So and and I serve la piece. I think that's going to be on the hunt for the unicorn. Hmm. Okay. All right. And then what do we got next? Well, let's try. Let's try.
1: Let's stay in Europe. Let's try uh, the Italian, which uh, starts with "Paparino e il centero del unicorno," which looks like Donald Duck on the trail of the unicorn. And I'm oh, not right. sure what "sentiero" is, but it must be trail or search.
0: I think so, and we'll we'll know when I do the Spanish because it's um, pretty much the same title. Yeah, got uh, "Pato Donald y el sendero del uni- del unicornio." And that's Donald Duck and the Unicorn Trail, so it must be uh, trail.
1: Okay, awesome. All oh, right. Always great to discover those titles and what people how they were how they were translating. Whether it was Donald Duck or yeah, I agree.
0: And then I had a little bit of fun switching from the story background to kind of the cultural background. I had a good time, Warren, looking at the the legend, the unicorn myth. I don't know if you got into that at all.
1: A little. Uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say. I, I really did go back and try to find that myth and why barks decided to play with that
0: so i mean unicorns are are like a pop culture fixture obviously and i think the classic representation is that they are like proud and noble this one you know we'll get into it but like this unicorn is is ferocious yeah I, (laughs) i think that one's it stands out right because unicorns are Sometimes they're represented as dangerous, but they're never usually like aggressive. So he's right. going to have a pretty unique and pretty cool version here. I, I won't go do too deep into it, but this is a legend that goes back really far, and it's one of those like examples of of culture, parallel culture, di- divergent culture. I can't remember the term for it, but where a lot of different cultures kind of come up with the same idea. There seems to be this hole in cultures, legends, this place for a proud horse with a horn. I learned that the unicorn myth actually is thought to originate in the Himalayas region. That was really cool to me. It's first recorded in like Mesopotamian myths, but it probably got there by way of India. And so the the Himalayas peoples are thought to have maybe kind of mixed up, combined four different animals, the Indian rhinoceros, um, the Chiru antelope, the wild ass Keong, and the Tibetan wild yak, and kind of amalgamated them into what became, you know, the the legend. And then I find it interesting, too, that the, the narwhal, they learned about the narwhal later on in Europe yes. from, like, Viking traders and that probably influenced the pop culture depiction of that sort of spirally horn
1: i'm glad you mentioned that because i was thinking of the narwhal as well and and how that was introduced and actually photographed and it wasn't a myth and uh i thought that was an interesting taking the the uh, the legend of what we now call a unicorn which i love your your description of the indian culture putting these these wonderful animals together to form this beast of of significance uh, but then we have a real animal that exists and we we put those together in, into creating the fable that is contemporary. And oftentimes, when I think of, of a unicorn, I think of the I think of a more docile uh, animal that I found featured in popular culture. As um, my granddaughter will be four years old on Thanksgiving this year, and she wanted a jewelry box with a musical. Uh, well, we got her the ballerina, but there is a unicorn on one, oh. and uh, it's pink, and it's smiling, and it's. Uh, tied to, uh, I think, uh, in this particular marketing appeal to a little girl. And I thought that was interesting. And then, of course, in popular culture, you've got an animated uh, animated series. You've got My Little Pony and its various renditions of the unicorn appealing to children. So when Barks introduces us to the unicorn... Wow. What a ferocious beast. And even on the unveiling of it in the story,
0: this majestic beast. Yeah. And you mentioned that it's majestic and it is, but it's also kind of uncouth. Yeah. That threw me off a little the first time I read it, because like they're always so elegant and and you said it, they're always kind of usually a little girl's character. Yeah. So this is uh yeah, this is this is a pretty cool contrast. Let's let's launch into the story unless you had anything else to chime in with
1: there. Water. Well, the only the only thing I'd love to launch the story with is is I have to I have to somehow say and I I, I read this if you go through those first few pages when we will my first thought what was bark's thinking about what was going on in his life at this time because he is truly we know that we talked a little bit at the last episode with Luck of the North that he was going through a tough time so he poured himself into his work in the late 40s and early 50s. But he is truly in a playful mood while writing this. And that and The only word I could come up with was playful and giddy. Uh, he It seems like Donald's dialogue and discovery of scrooge's estate out in the country in his zoo i mean barks is having a field day exposing more of his characters he loves so much but giving us more information and having fun with the dialogue like almost not caring but having being really confident in his writing that that's what i
0: i thought yeah i, I think i think you're on to something right because this is breezy story right yeah. it's not good, good word yeah. yeah, it's not it's not like careless, but but it is it's it's got kind of almost this casual overtone. You're you're absolutely right. Like he's he's really brisk with the storytelling, maybe to a fault, because this one this one's pretty quick, but there are some really nice elements to that too, right? How yeah. he launches us into the middle of the phone call. Yeah, that that's interesting.
1: I wanted to share that 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 I just there's a playfulness going on with him while he unveils some really interesting things in his primary characters.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's a I think that's a good thing to keep in mind as we go through it. So let's um let's do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off and I'll let hey. you take the the alternating pages. But but as always, chime in if you see something that you wanna say. Or I, I already referenced that we start off in the middle of a phone call. It's it's clear that. Donald is listening. he He is not steering the conversation. He is yesing his uncle Scrooge repeatedly. It's clear that, you know, Scrooge is the driver of the conversation. Donald ends the phone call with his head swimming and checking in with the nephews. And, you know, Donald has obviously just been instructed to to get out here as quick as possible. I've got big doings, big business for you, because the nephews can barely get his attention long enough to learn that he's on his way out to Scrooge's country estate. They want to tag along and find out what's what's going on. And so we we get the characters moving. Right, they start out right away, almost immediately in transit. They leave Duckburg. We get a a great little sight gag. You know, I I should pause here for a moment to highlight the fact that one of the superlative things about this story is that he's near the top of his game as far as the sight gags go.
1: Absolutely, he knows what he's doing, and he knows he's he's gonna win the reader over with these little sight gags, like the the lovebirds and (laughs) leaving Duckburg. Uh, Yeah, how do you interpret that? Those two birds.
0: I, I interpret that as the male bird, um, you know, feeling threatened and and being encroached. Yeah, and get it just, away! It? Yeah, I love yeah. it. But um, this one may pack in more sight gags per page than your average bark story. And I, I recently did, of course, um, Land of the Totem Poles, mm-hmm. and and I didn't remember that one very well at all. And I found that that was the same thing. That had a really high ratio of sight gags. So as as they're departing Duckburg they pass by their cousin Gladstone he is thrown into the story right away and we see him lounging and fishing so that's a really great identification of his kind of you know lackadaisical bon vivant character. Exactly, and and, was- and they do reference before <laughs> when Donald turns off to Scrooge's private road. The nephews are leading the story along and and let the reader know that oh Uncle Scrooge has a zoo out at his country estate. So that's that's going to be our destination. And t- tell us about our perspective shift on the next page.
1: Right, right. And yeah, he, he, he they pass uh, Gladstone. I don't think they see Gladstone. Gladstone sees them. But he quickly says, okay, they're going off to his estate. So we get uh, to Gladstone um, peering now from the branch of a tree. He scurries up a tree quickly uh, and says, nobody goes there unless it's important business. And then uh, could the old guy, referring to uh, Uncle Scrooge, uh, want Donald to be one of the animals? That's the first of a couple of times where Donald's character could be characterized as a zoo animal. I think that's yeah. another... It's not a sight gag, but it's a verbal gag, and I love it. Um,
0: I do, too.
1: So, and then he goes, no, nah, that's silly. So he quickly dismisses that thought. You see the silhouette of Gladstone running through this Make this first time I think the readers ever see a country estate of Uncle Scrooge outside of downtown Duckburg. He sees the, the convenient drain pipe. Oh, good, I can eavesdrop if I'm lucky. Again, pointing out that I'm lucky on this, but I'm always lucky. In fact, Lucky Gladstone Gander is what I'm famous as. And uh, Karl Barks has a tendency to want to reintroduce some of those primary traits in his stories just to remind the reader again who they are and what their traits are. We 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 come up then to Donald and the Nephews, pulling up to a kind of a bent-over Uncle Scrooge in silhouette on the front porch, almost like the Uncle Scrooge we see in Christmas on Bear Mountain, almost in that kind of crouched over, leaning both hands on the cane. But he looks glum, and then Scrooge right away says, uh, jump out and follow me. And this is, again, the continuation of the famous, what I call, continuous dialogue of Donald. Yes, Uncle Scrooge. So what he left off on the telephone, he picks up again. I counted over 20 Yes, Uncle Scrooges <laughs> alone, Mark. And so then he um, takes him under this grand view of this, what I would call a, not a modern zoo, of course, but back in the 50s and the 40s, there were the caged animals. You don't see that a lot in modern zoos now, but uh, you see what uh, he's referring to in the background as the, 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 the zoo.
0: Yes. A- excellent points, Warren. Right. Thanks for highlighting that he left off with the yes, Uncle Scrooge on, on the phone call. And it's it's a great gag, right? Because we're going to see for, for the first many exchanges, Donald's wow. only response is going to be yes, Uncle Scrooge to really good comic effect and and you're right about Scrooge he's a little bit stooped over but you can see that evolution right he's i think he's looking physically more like a little bit more like the modern Scrooge that oh, yeah. what what he's going to land on yeah, in the last few
1: i agree and but then of course the next frame he's the spry uncle Scrooge that's off on an adventure but not yeah. him he's sending the ducks on the adventure on his behalf this yeah. is where I, I said earlier mark that the uh, the playfulness of of barks is showing here in the dialogue
0: right because we've got a lot of neat neat little examples of dialogue um these first few pages at the zoo they're pretty wild right because we have all these things going on at once right and and we maybe we can just kind of synthesize this couple of pages organically because for this zoo sequence scrooge is gradually setting up that he has this task for Donald, you know, he's rightly proud of a zoo that is said to have every animal, but in fact, it's missing one animal. The the nephews initially defend Donald because they call back <laughs> to that goof um, saying, you know, Uncle Scrooge, you can't put Donald in your zoo. And and while this conversation is happening, while Scrooge is leading up to what what we the reader, you know, can kind of guess from the, the title, of course. He's going to ask him to go in search of the unicorn, um, and he's browbeaten him into saying, yes, Uncle Scrooge, repeatedly. I-, I have to think that's probably his business sense, getting him responding affirmatively over yes. and over. And in parallel, we have Gladstone trailing the ducks, trying to eavesdrop on what the big business deal that they've got going is and at the same time we're passing by these really like fantastic looking it's a mix of like realistic animals um, that are very ferocious and and goofy animals like a ganoof yeah um, yep. uh, you know what i misremembered that there were more of the goofy animals mm-hmm. in, in this one than just the Ganoof. And I think that I had a false memory from Don Rose's like semi-follow-up to
1: this one. That's possible. I I I have a similar memory of the Ganoof, definitely, but then looking at some of the other frames, it will we'll discover some of these other odd animals that he introduced.
0: So yeah, we've got and and we've got Gladstone almost blundering into these like dangerous animal enclosures. Uh, and, and he just highlights the fact that, you know, if his luck is not is not letting him access it, it's probably doing it for a reason. So he ends up in an empty in a pen and we get to the ducks getting kind of down to business with Scrooge. Tell us about that page.
1: Yeah, I mean, the ducks now are, are you know, yes, Uncle Scrooge. Yes, Uncle Scrooge. I'll give you ten thousand dollars and all expenses to go to Asia and secure the animal. Would you like to do it? And there's that final Yes, Uncle Scrooge, echoed by the nephews and Donald. They look happy. $10,000 is ringing in their heads. And then he just says, no, that's a promise. Yes, Uncle Scrooge, one more time from Donald. And then, he, of course, he pulls down the screen. I love it. It's a little, like, <laughs> a pull-down screen. It just happens to be there with a picture of the unicorn on it. Um, and then, of course, the payoff to the, all the Yes, Uncle Scrooges comes up at the end of that page. No, Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> What do you mean? No, as he starts the first page. But I love that that exposition, and then then you, of course you've got the ever-present Gladstone finally lifting the grate off the ground in a safe pen, and he's heard everything.
0: Yeah, and, and it's almost like a, a classic Abbott and Costello routine or something, right? I, I feel That's like a it's good, been yes, informed yes, by like who's on first, right? Because <laughs> like you said, if you count them up, there's a ton of those, and so it's it's. It's, it's the rule of comedy where you do that pattern and yes. you get the payoff. And, and it's great that no Uncle Scrooge really lands with a punch. You know, Barks chose to end that page with that panel for, for a reason. And wrap up that <laughs> gag,
1: that, that yeah. verbal gag, which you said, okay. great, great uh, comparison to the comedy timing and exchange of an Abbott and Costello. Certainly that would be my comparison as well.
0: Right and it's culturally at that time that would feel very relevant I think and that was a reveal too you know you can almost hear Scrooge flourish the yeah. um the the projector screen and so and so on the next page we get you know Donald going he's defending why he now wants to take back his promise he is of course insisting that unicorns are not real. They're figments. He compares them to fawns and satyrs. And um, Scrooge immediately counters with the fact that this is not a drawing. It is a photograph that one of his pilots snapped it cresting the Himalaya mountain. And so Donald is just uh, bemoaning the fact that he's his big mouth has made a promise that he doesn't want to keep. But, you know, Scrooge is pointing out that he's going to have this is going to be all expenses. And Warren, this strikes me as way more generous, you know, than the the model that he would establish going forward. You mentioned that going forward in not too many stories, he's going to go along for the ride. Right. Yeah. Marks parks yeah. hasn't really figured out that Uncle Scrooge doesn't just send them off at this Over. time. This is this this is like that weird little transitional point
1: that's a really good point because he starts joining them on many of their adventures as we as we move forward in time but here is it's uh it's basically give me the last known animal on earth that I do not have in my extremely great zoo <laughs> and and uh nothing nothing I will spare no expense I don't think ten thousand dollars is a lot of money but about that back then and for Donald and the nephews that's probably a you could live on that for a while um, yeah and
0: I did do I did visit the handy dandy inflation calculator oh, what would you come up with uh, it's 114 large, so you know 114,000, not bad. Um, that's before yeah, yeah. we count the the adventure, I guess, and the all expenses paid, and and so of course Gladstone has overheard this, and he's resolved to be in Shangri La, which is the name that Scrooge says that they're gonna, the name of the city that's gonna be their like jumping off point, and, and this of course is a reference to. The the classic story, um, Lost Horizon, right?
1: Yeah, that was a Lost Horizon was a wonderful, well, Frank Frank Capra film, right? Back in the '30s, and uh, and was one of my favorite directors of all time, and wonderful storyteller. But yeah, that was the the Shangri La, you know, Lost
0: Horizon. And that's a, a that's a reference that is super famous. There are a lot of oh, yeah. uh, theories that are going to parody that place and that concept. You know, it, again, it feels like one of those cultural touchstones that someone figured this out and then everyone came back and told that same story. And of course, Carl Barks is going to come back and tell that story again, very memorably. But this is just kind of a fleeting reference to it.
1: And I'll say on that last panel of that page with the, you see the the blue great cover that he says, and not a bad deal for me. See you in shangri la cousin Donald. And that's the last we hear from him for a while. And I want to come back to that transition because, well, we'll we'll come back to it.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we get this little transitional page next where Donald is is en route and he's getting chided to hurry up over the radio comms by Uncle Scrooge. Um, right. We get some. We get some neat scenery of him flying through a mountain pass into Shangri-La, and he's kind of he, he's kind of just internally, you know, kind of missing the kids because he opted to leave the kids behind. and And he disembarks from the plane and is immediately shocked to see the kids appearing as though they have been, you know, beaten him there and have been waiting for him to arrive. And that's what we see. We see
1: them (coughs) leaning up against a wall. One of the nephews is, you know, hiya, Uncle Donald. And and they move into, am I seeing things? I might have known you kids would follow me over here. No, we didn't follow you. We stowed away on the plane. And then, of course, that just frustrates Donald to no end. Uh, Great little shot of him there. Uh, I love that artwork well, I won't be stuck with you. Come on. We'll go find a place uh, where you can stay while I go hunt unicorns <laughs> in the mountains. I thought that was interesting. He was going to... And then, of course, we they, they trail after him and beg Donald to not leave them behind. Uh, you will need our help, which is foreshadowing a whole lot. <laughs> and, That's true. He, and he says, shut up, which I, I just... A classic. Once in a while, Donald, just say that. And it just that brings me back to my first claim in the first podcast where He's just every man. He's just, he just speaks his mind and he says what we think. But then we jump to this new character that's introduced at the time here. This mystical man who comes out of the shadows and says, I see a man who has come far on a strange quest. And I love that response of what is it to you, bud? And then he introduces himself. I'm Mustafa Handout. Or of course, we know that I must have a handout. (laughs) And uh, I'm not so sure the reader at this stage knows who that is. I think they do. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one, Mark.
0: Yeah, I mean... I think for a certain reader, you instantly recognize it as Gladstone. I think I remember back to reading this at about age eight or nine. I assumed that it probably was, but I wasn't sure. Um, you know, he, he introduces himself as as a fakir. A fakir do, you know what, yeah. do you know what a fakir
1: is, Warren? Yeah, I did a little research on that. And uh, what I have is, uh, from one definition, it's a, a Muslim or Hindu religious um, ascetic or mendicant mendicant i'm a monk commonly considered a wonder worker that's what i found out and i thought you know if you want to break that down it was a, a definitely a part of that culture's community maybe a religious sect or something like that what did you find
0: yeah and so i knew i knew a little bit about this already it's it's usually someone who's is islamic it might refer to hindu but usually usually someone who's muslim and from this like Sect that is kind of concerned with miracle work, mysticism. And famously, they're very, they have like this beggar. Aesthetic, and I think there's a little bit of romance to them—the sort of like adventurous, magical aura over over the deck in earlier pop culture, where you might kind of slip one of them in if you just needed to introduce a little bit of mysticism into your story. It's it's impossible not to like reference the fact that (laughs) we know it's Gladstone because we're adults (laughs) and we've read this before, and and he's like used soot to dark in his skin and that's obviously obviously a very tacky it was a tacky thing back then but it was a common trope. Today you know this would be this would be roundly denounced. I am not going to be as hard on barks for this one as I have been in kind of what I've come to think of as the like the problematic 3, which would be like Voodoo Hoodoo, Volcano Valley and Land of the Totem Poles, right. where where the um the casual disregard for culture is really elemental to the story. This is kind of a throwaway, so it's it's gross by our standards, and in hindsight, I always recognize, yes, this was a totally common trope at the time. I'm not trying to be too hard on Barks, but, but at the same time, I don't want to alienate people who, who would see this and don't have that perspective of reading comics from the 1950s and I, I you know. agree with you, Mark.
1: Yeah, very good take on this. I I totally agree with that that comment, and especially the fact that we know it's it's Gladstone in disguise, clearly wanting to win Donald over with a scheme. And we also know that uh, the writing here, if you if you he's not altering his voice or his text. I mean, he's he's clearly. Speaking in Gladstone speak. And uh, so I think giving Barks a little bit of, of, um, yes, I mean, you wouldn't, it wouldn't pass today. There would be another way to handle it today. But, but I do believe the gimmick here that he's introducing is acceptable. It's it's not as bad as it could be. Exactly. I don't.
0: I'll give him even a little bit more credit by noting that on the next couple of pages there are going to be some passing background characters that are actually shown pretty like pretty respectfully they're they're just they are represented as people not as Absolutely. sort of tropes so a lot better than this one could have been and and again it's just this little element of the story that we move on from pretty quick.
1: And so Donald pushes him away, and, and the last panel is um, um, Gladstone in disguise saying, all right, just for that insult, I won't tell you where you can find a unicorn, which, of course, exposes his mystical power uh, that he's uh, been selling Donald. Lot.
0: Right. Because on the next page, he's passing this off as fortune-telling. He basically is going to chisel $10 out of Donald for the information. Right. Um, and he consults his crystal ball, which the nephews the nephews have clocked him immediately. They notice that it's nothing but an old light bulb and gladstone is implying that uh yeah there's going to be a unicorn nearby but it's going to cost you a lot
1: yeah so we uh we see this this is where you reference the uh the background characters having really a nice human element touch to it that barks you find in barks's other career as an oil painter when he would paint the uh the america the native uh culture of the southwest of the united states and he kind of brings out the the realism in his characters here he's done it in a few few comics, as we will talk about, but I really do like the way he paid, I think, some sensitivity here to the culture. As we open the next page where, he, now Donald just needs to know where this unicorn is. He says, will you follow it with a trail of rice? What's rice? Grains of si- rice on the sidewalk dope. <laughs> I mean, he's speaking like Gladstone to his cousin. Just this great panel of him almost looks like he's balancing on one finger, but you know he's leaping up in the air saying, this one right here, and he's pointing right down at the sidewalk, like get a grip, Donald, figure out what I'm telling you. And of course he doesn't see any rice. The minute he says that, uh, the nephews notice that, the Fakir Gladstone has disappeared. And he just wonders now if he's been taken for for $10. Uh, one of the nephews acknowledges, you could be, but tonight we'll know for sure because they had set up that, that meeting place. So closes off by pointing to the nephews saying, you mean, I will. You kids are going to be locked up safe in a nice hotel. Again, keeping them away from any adventure, any danger. Then the last you hear from the nephews, they're out, also out of sight. And if you turn around, um, that we too have disappeared, just like Gladstone. Now, this is where I start questioning a lot of story plot line, and we'll, we'll get into it in the next few pages here.
0: Yeah, this this is one of those um, sequences where it's impossible not to read it today being like, how, how is Donald not like canceling all of his plans to, to find his nephews alone in a foreign country? But par- <laughs> part of the appeal of these stories, you know, the nephews are an avatar for the reader, and we like to see the nephews being very independent,
1: well, we know so, that. I agree. Yeah.
0: And and we can't have Donald panicking too much. Donald knows that they can get along. So he's going to just spend the next um, the next few hours waiting for the appointed time and m- know that the nephews will be on their own and be okay. And mm-hmm. he does come to find a grain of um, a trail of grains of rice at that appointed time. Uh, and it's, it's nighttime and he follows it to a quote, scary old temple that seems to have a lot of sort of um, Hindu looking animal statuary around it. It's, it's There's a, a pan- pretty cool panel.
1: Yeah, it's a nice panel. In fact, I, I make note later that I wish it was a more of a splash panel. Um, there aren't very few splash panels in this story, that are I agree. Large, that are large, but yeah, then he moves into the uh, the temple area where you see, uh, as you said, these these wonderful statues, silhouettes of an elephant, um, warriors, um, very much part of the Himalayan culture. Or at least that's what Barks is depicting in this old temple. Donald's looking around. He sees the Trail of Rice End right there at that second panel on that page. And then he yells, hello in there, anybody home? And he hears this, of course, the whinny of of a horse. And then he says, well, that's a horse. Uh, Something's got to be in here unless unicorns whinny, which I thought was interesting. But then he says, I say, is anybody home? And then, of course, we see Gladstone again dressed up as Mustafa Handout. Who do you think I am, bud? one of the statues which again is a little bit of foreshadowing. <laughs>
0: but, and you know what Warren I think that Gladstone is supposed to be um a, di- a totally different person at this point, right? He's he's lazily used basically the same getup, but I'm, oh, I'm I never the... I never
1: thought about that. T- talk about that.
0: Yeah, cuz cuz we're supposed to think of his first we're supposed to think of his first disguise as a fakir So he's like made up to look like a beggar. Right. But in this, you see the
1: different whiskers. Yeah, yeah. He's got,
0: he's got different whiskers. He's not dirtied up. He, so, and and I do remember being confused as a kid because I was like, why is Donald not recognizing him? And, and it registered for me at some point. Oh, he's posing as yet another local. I'm and, glad
1: you pointed that out in the, in the reading I have um, there, there, the, um, The red turban and the green cape is what I have on both characters. And I don't know if your story is a little different coloration. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm reference. I I see the I have the Fantagraphics, but I'm referencing that Gladstone one because I like the coloring decisions um, that Gladstone tended to make. So very much, and and they have the same color scheme, which I think is is confusing. But I'm I'm pretty confident that they're meant to be different. Portions. Well,
1: there's no question now that you point that out. They are definitely different characters, and Donald doesn't recognize the former as the latter. Um, Right. That's this as the guy who is supposed to um, hand over the unicorn. Uh, So good, (laughs) good, good catch on that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so on the next page, you know, we're we're getting I didn't talk about it at the beginning, but this story has the version of Donald that is naive or credulous for at least a big part of the story, because, you know, Gladstone in his pose here is basically going to present what we can tell is a horse. He lays out the price as being $10,000, you know, conveniently referencing exactly what Scrooge is prepared to spend. Um, He warns him away from the quote, solid gold horn. you know, keep your distance. And so Donald, Donald forks over the money. Um, we We kind of reference to three more of the statues in the background that are that are the nephews in silhouette in in a hidden pose. Warren, it's interesting to me. I just did, I recorded recently, the, and it'll have aired at this point, the podcast for Land of the Totem Poles. We have kind of the same trope, right? Mm-hmm. Of a character disguising himself as part of a, a native culture's like statuary or their, right. um, I don't know what the encompassing term is for an, an artifact. I think blending so, it with the artifacts of the Yeah. Season.
1: As they did in Land of the Totem Poles, and as they're doing here, and again, the nephews are are wiser uh, beyond their years, and uh, and we accept them as 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 the reader dealing with the story here. Yeah,
0: right. And, and Donald closes the page out, being proud of how quickly he's gotten this unicorn. But, uh, and and why don't you just kind of tell us, synthesize this.
1: Again, uh, hold on. This is where um, Gladstone now is exposed in this page. And and he runs after him and says, hey, hand me over that $10,000. You picked my pockets. And of course, Donald's getting into this exchange. I didn't pick your pocket and you know it. And now we see the nephews show up on top of that fake unicorn. Right here, cousin Gladstone gander, the the exposed Gladstone. And now this next panel, I'm going to just read it because I think this exposes for me and kind of a big plot hole or at least a big decision Barks made in in saying this and this was we've been expecting one of your tricks ever since we saw you stow away on Uncle Donald's plane and what I what I found interesting about that as I studied this a little is that the nephews also stowed away uh-huh. so, We never saw Gladstone in any of the previous panels get on the plane, but they saw him stow away. And it made me wonder, Mark, why they're waiting until all of this transcended, all of this, all these panels, without telling Donald right away, Gladstone's here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's, It's a little bit of a plot hole. And I mean, when you consider how small that plane was, too, the idea of both sets being stowaways with Gladstone not realizing that he'd been he'd well, been seen. But but I'm overthinking
1: it. I'm overthinking that plot hole a little because it's fun that they they knew he was Gladstone
0: from day one. But but I mean Warren, what what else is a podcast for but overthinking? I I welcome overthinking. <laughs> so I don't I do not want to dissuade you from from highlighting that. The the way I read it, you know, is that the nephews maybe they wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they just wanted, maybe they just wanted to be a little bit dramatic and maybe they figure this gives them a little bit of leverage over over Uncle Donald, right? Because they're going to kind of swoop in and save the day. This makes for a good transition, actually, to the next page, right? Because because this does elevate them. And Donald is so grateful to them for exposing Gladstone's charade and getting the money back. He takes a good look. He realizes it's like a nag horse with a a carrot for a horn. He figures out that he's been swindled. And, um, you know, he... He at least resolves that he can keep this $10 horse that he he's clearly purchased from Gladstone, who he wails on. I like <laughs> that. Yeah, you don't and see that the often. Nephews yeah. get, the nephews get to ride in style, right? Because this was a nice way to set them up as willing participants in the adventure. Yeah, and I,
1: I, I like that, the <laughs> fact that they probably just waited until they could expose him for who he was and uh, not let Donald get hurt. That certainly didn't was never part of their plan. Uh, but then that, that that unfolding of that at that point, it wouldn't have been fun to do that any earlier because you wouldn't have all these wonderful pages. So exactly
0: so. right from a writer's perspective, they revealed it at just the perfect time.
1: And I love the last panel of your page there that you just talked about. They're, they're trotting off in victory. They are he beat up Gladstone pretty good there. Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, and then you've got this great nephew looking back with that unicorn carrot horn on his forehead. I just love that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks for calling that panel out because that's a fun one. And you know, it's it's interesting to me to note sometimes those panels where the nephews are doing different things because you don't see a ton of those. You You don't. We've got got the one nephew goofing where he's wearing that. Unicorn horn. So, uh, yeah, go for it. Tell us about it.
1: Well, now they venture. Now they're on their adventure. Now, from their perspective, Gladstone is history. He has nothing to do with this anymore. He's going to lick his wounds and head back to home. So now they've got a lot of work to do here as they... Are still convinced there is a real unicorn. So the first panel on this next page is is an iconic panel. I think it it could have been a splash panel, but there's some words in it, and that probably wouldn't have worked. But um, but I love the prodding. The it have been an
0: oil painting. Man, It looks like it
1: could have been an oil painting. Yes, it could have been one of the oils in one of the um, the lithographs, absolutely. But you have Donald uh, pulling, the nephews pushing, and this poor old horse who, the former unicorn, has now turned into a pack mule and is doing whatever he can to, to help them succeed in their, their, their venture. But at 12,000 feet, they quickly learn that the horse can't make it any longer, and, and we know that the horse is going off to another owner. And they've got this great uh, yak now, which is uh, more acclimated to the, to that elevation, uh, which is very accurate. But at 15,000 feet, even the yak gives out, and the weather turns, and uh, as Donald so nicely says, he's quit yeah. Uh, they, they had another beautiful panel here of the a far shot of them uh, venturing in silhouette up the mountaintop. They're, they're nearing 20,000 feet, and they're just going through this horrendous adventure without any safety net, it looks like. And there should be nothing but unicorns up here, says Donald, but then one of the nephews wisely says or nothing period, which brings us back to that possible realism that there's nothing here at all. Uh, and then they get up there to the rocks, and it's, the, um, you know, what, what could they eat up here? What could they survive on? And again, the knowledge of one of the nephews, all we have to do is look for a lot of mossy rocks, and there will be our unicorn. So, yeah, I mean, they they now know what the unicorn can live on, or at least they discover that there's moss on the side of the rocks and that's what they must live
0: on. Yeah, and this is a really quick transition up the mountain to me, right? It's, oh, it's, it's one quick. page oh, yeah. um, from basically the bottom of the mountain to, to the elevation that they're going to get to. This is the part of the story that, you know, it doesn't work as well for me as it could because mm-hmm. it feels a little compressed in some places. Like Barks was really interested in kind of the Scrooge business deal, and then the Gladstone flimflamery, and and I think the adventure part of this story gets just a little bit short shrifted. Um, he
1: is condensing it here, and if you go back to Luck of the North when they were stranded on the iceberg, at least it would describe the panel as days pass, and mm-hmm. you don't see the days pass here. You, it, it's moving. As you said, very quickly from the foothills to 20,000 feet in less than about eight panels. <laughs> right.
0: And so when they're at that height, um, there's this really, I, I really like this sequence where they are crossing like a snowbank and they kind of collapse through and they land in one of these like famous sort of hidden valleys right it's obscured from the world this is like the best of barks this is why i loved these as a kid these yeah, little yeah. hidden pockets of discovery where it's very green down there at least in the coloring that i've got they see a lot of these moss colored rocks which you know lends credence to what they're speculating and they're calling out for their unit for the unicorn they've nicknamed him uni which is really <laughs> cute and we have the neat this neat little mini sequence here where a nephew is calling out Uni and Donald is cautioning him not to scare him away. He speculates that unicorns must be a very timid animal. And then we get our first in-person glimpse of the unicorn, which is observing Donald as he says this. And it just has this look of murderous rage on its face. And it's got a little snort cloud from its nose. And we we know immediately, like, it, it looked tough in that photograph. But this is our first suggestion. This is a dangerous animal. Absolutely. We now know this is an animal that does
1: not like intruders on his land. Um, and that land, as they back to your page uh, when they walk through that's that sort of Lost Horizon discovery of warm Shangri-La and here they're and that's that's the fantasy I agree with you as a kid when I read this I just love that now they're into this wonderful fantasy land of warmth and green but that's also where the fantasy figure of the unicorn lives. And, and that's just wonderful pasting together of those two. But then the snort, snort, and that vicious animal just rushes Donald. That third panel on that, that page where it says, "screak" and he does this about face and turn, is one of my favorite art panels of the story. Uh, it's just great action. You've got that growling face. You've got the, the profile of the head but you've got this great action with the hoofs and the legs and hitting that rock and almost seeing this immediate U-turn, as Donald says, run for your lives. And, um, And, of course, he goes toward this rock, and he splits the rock clean in two. Donald yells and calls that out, grabs the tail. And then, of course, we see one of the nephews just cornered. And what's going to happen next?
0: Yeah, the nephew is terrified, and he looks doomed. And he kind of has this like hopeless hopeless little faint. The only thing he can think of is to offer the unicorn some lunch. And he presents him one of those moss-covered rocks. Mm -hmm. And it it works. The unicorn screeches to a halt. It comes. Calmly eats the moss. And uh, another nephew tells Donald, who has mounted the unicorn because of the way he's like slid to a halt, to cover the animal's eyes with a blindfold. And <laughs> and the unicorn just basically explodes. Yeah. Um, it's it's bucking wild. And, and eventually we transition to the ducks having subdued it. Probably it's tired itself out. And Just like that, you know, again, one of my criticisms of this story, which I do really enjoy, but nonetheless, a criticism is that the pacing is so quick here, right? We've only got a couple of pages in this little unicorn Shangri-La, and then they're packing their way down the mountain. Yeah, and with... there's this little ominous stinger panel at the end where they're they're saying, "Man, we got we got really lucky. That was pretty easy." They're kind of highlighting how that feels a bit unnatural.
1: Yeah, they 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 now <clears throat> are making their descent, and and they they call out the fifteen thousand and twelve thousand feet, again, where they're at. But again, this is a an docile animal now. It's blindfolded. It's it's tired. The nephew has carried the, the moss-covered rock with to nibble on, and I'm very happy that they got that, so they quickly make it to the bottom. Um, again, I agree. It, it would have been nice to see a little bit more adventure here, but limited to 24 pages. Who knows? Maybe he would have, have expanded that a little bit more. Uh, nibbling on the moss, the uh, the unicorn is extremely happy. Um, so um, Huey look, looks really tired and it has a little sack over his shoulder and and donald's just wondering uh you know what makes you so blasted tired i'm carrying uh it's it's the heavy rock i'm carrying it saved my life and by golly i'm taking it home for a souvenir and that is the rock that huey who is sort of the star of the nephews in this story yeah. handed out handed out to the unicorn which he gleefully ate and that's how they they were saved so huey is uh sentimental and and wants to take that as a souvenir back home. Right now, it's just a souvenir, but something to maybe feed the unicorn on the way down from the mountain. But nevertheless, it saved my life, and I'll never forget
0: it. That's some good storytelling here.
1: They get down to the bottom, and there's nothing but green grass. They point that out. Doesn't it look wonderful? We're now on land. We can get back to normal. Donald ties the unicorn blindfolded unicorn up to the tree. You know, I don't uh, think this is a good idea, Donald, when he says, why don't you go ahead and take the blindfold off of uni? And of course, uh, this is where a little bit of heck breaks out here.
0: Yeah, that's right. We, I I love the panel on this following page when they, when they unveil um, the blindfold and let him see the green grass that they mm-hmm. imagine he's going to love. That silhouette panel, Warren, is spectacular. Barks yeah. really shows the power. He's conveyed how ferocious and powerful this is. And Uni immediately rips the tree that he's been snubbed to from the ground and runs off. And the ducks can really do nothing other than watch helplessly as their meal ticket gallops off into the distance and and we transition to Gladstone again this is where we get to encounter him and he's been living off the fat of the land <laughs> for, and for Gladstone that means letting his luck find him rubies and diamonds and he's dressed in all this finery you know he's dismayed a little at the run of bad luck that he had with Donald but things seem to be looking up and he's kind of highlighting the fact that for him everything happens for a And so he's thinking he can still get his hands on that money as he sits lounges on a rock in front of a tree. I love his reference to um, uh, letting Dame
1: Fortune dump a bale of Mazuma into his lap. So I looked up up Mazuma and it's just slang for money. And uh, again, he's classically back to the old Gladstone. Luck is the way of life. I'm dressed in the finest clothes, even... Finer than Uncle Scrooge and uh, just looks great. But then he he ganders over at uh, uh, what he sees over on the grass. He goes, I believe those are uh, a pearl necklace lying over there. And, of course, the timing of Gladstone looking at those pearls and Uni, the unicorn, seeing this new stranger uh, with that, again, fierce Uh, look on on his face come charging toward gladstone as i love this gladstone says i guess i have to stoop over and pick it up (laughs) like that's too much work so he does and of course the luck of gladstone occurs again when uni sails over him in that great panel his top hat falls off but he doesn't kind of isn't aware of what's going on he just has the pearls and uh, uni uh, plows into a tree and it sort of is that corkscrew kind of action and you see this great last panel here where he's okay he's doesn't know what happened to him but he's in the tree and then my uh, golly there's the best luck of all a unicorn screwed into a tree he as far as he knew it was always there
0: Yeah, that's an awesome sequence, right? Really good timing. (laughs) Just the contrast between the oblivious Gladstone and the ferocious looking unicorn. And Barks occasionally will put these little flourishes on the borders of the page, right? There's this neat little drawing of a horseshoe and a four leaf clover. Yes, yes. Kind of adorns it referencing his luck. I haven't seen that since I did the um letter to Santa episode where he kind of filigreed the panels with some, you know, Christmas finery. Yeah, so, I'm
1: glad you pointed that out because it does tie the, this is truly tying all these panels together and just, and of just accentuates Gladstone's luck.
0: So on the next page. You know, this is our transition back to Duckburg, where um, Gladstone is casually going to go inform Scrooge that he's got a unicorn, while Donald and the kids are hopelessly searching for for the missing uni when they finally um, call up Scrooge to let him know what happened Scrooge tells him don't bother you know you you're Mm -hmm. fired I've Mm -hmm. got a unicorn from Gladstone so and and to cap it off he tells them that they're now responsible for their own way home. Or he Donald learns that he's, they're responsible for their own way home because Gladstone has taken the plane back. Yeah. So they're really at their lowest points when they finally stow away on a, work their way home on a cattle boat.
1: They are at the lowest point of any time in the story or any time that I can remember that they, they had to find their uh, own way home without any help. It, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I guess we're, we're setting them up their windfall soon but it's it's a pretty low point when they when they cross back into the city limits. They've got the classic um, bindle, the hobo bindle bag on a stick, and they're passed by Gladstone in one of Bark's great fake fancy cars. He calls it a Super V16 Rolls Smack Hard. I, al- I always love his references to-, to fancy cars. The names are awesome.
1: Yeah, the Smack Hard is a takeoff on the, the popular car of the day, the Packard. And uh...
0: Oh, that's right.
1: The smackard and the packard. And I just, he does that a lot. And uh, he takes that popular cultural reference and turns it into a Duckburg duck language. And I just love it. Um, So it's an
0: amalgam of a a Rolls Royce and a Packard, huh? It
1: is. It is. Yes, it is. And of course, Gladstone's in his finest hour. And there there we are with the, the four of them coming back into Duckburg. Donald starts the next panel with, you know, he gets the gravy and we get nothing and he just can't take it anymore. But they find contentment. They're at home. Huey unpacks his mossy-covered rock that he saved for the memories and as a memento from this adventure that they finished. Um, Donald looks content. He's sitting back. It's been a long time now. They took a long time getting home. They've kind of accepted their, their fate at this point, and uh, he wants to read the paper. So he pulls over, open the paper, and my goodness, there's news about the unicorn. Um, they, at this point, knew that Scrooge now has the unicorn in his zoo, but he reads in the newspaper that the unicorn is very sick and the greatest scientists in the world can't do a thing for him. It says here he won't eat. I love the next panel because all eyes go to that foreground shot of the moss-covered rock and, um, that's all we have to see as we move to the zoo where the unicorn does not look well laying on a bed of hay and there is Scrooge wailing one million dollars to anybody who could save my unicorn immediately Donald shows up said did you say one million no I said two million I mean he ups the ante a million dollars yeah. right there and that great artwork again of, of Scrooge close-eyed and just absolutely wants the unicorn to be better and then Donald just says Huey again the star of the nephews in the story do your stuff
0: yeah this is a great page right the there's some very spare storytelling you're right to highlight that panel um this is this is one of those cases where there's this adventure story with a lot of cool locales but that panel is very memorable to me all four ducks turning um you can almost feel the the stone beaming with pride or something oh yeah and then scrooge despairing really awesome artwork this this might be my favorite page of the story and so we close the story out with huey offering the unicorn a nibble of that moss from that precious and hard-won rock, and the the unicorn is again revived, like he was when they were coming down the mountain, and he whinnies with delight. Scrooge celebrates that his unicorn is saved, and while they're being chased by the re, I, I like that the unicorn is still vicious as as he <laughs> ever was, even though he's just been saved. Scrooge is asking about the moss and and the. From, from their safe perch on the roof. The roof you, of, the, of <laughs> one of the buildings, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're explaining that it's moss and giving Scrooge the key to how he can sustain his unicorn. And um, you mentioned this last panel being really iconic. Um, so why don't you finish it off? Because because it, it is delightful.
1: Well, it, it, we finally see the first and only huge splash panel, and it's just rubbing every bit of victory that donald and the nephews have into this great great scene of this long unbelievable limousine car with horns <laughs> uh, a unicorn uh, as a as a, uh, a hood ornament and and not one but two drivers
0: <laughs> two chauffeurs and
1: a tv antenna or something <laughs> in the middle but donald is just basking in glory eyes closed arms behind his head, the nephews glancing over at Gladstone in his nice smackered roll smackard. Um, And then one of the drivers closes it by saying, one side, small fry. It's just classic. They're absolutely passing him. There's DD on the car. And it's just a classic ending to again Donald being victorious over Gladstone. You can be lucky, but there's the ultimate luck in being good. I, I think that's the one of the morals of this is just the the Huey story, saving the rock, saving the unicorn. Great way to close the story.
0: Yeah, it's an awesome panel. This you can tell that Barks had a blast drawing this panel, right? I think he loved drawing fancy cars i I love the contrast with Gladstone's fancy car that looks like a toy when you compare it next to the single. Incredibly gaudy and tacky, but obviously ferociously expensive luxury monstrosity of a car. It's great. This is something that is going to have to be etch a sketched away, as as we always do. You know, there's not going to be, there can't ever be any continuity um, when when Donald strikes it rich at the end, because we, we need him to start out by the next story, back uh, you know to square one.
1: Donald Donald will go back to being Donald, but you're right. This is a, a great way to just really close out this fantastic story with, again, two chauffeurs. I I just love that. (laughs) Not one, but two.
0: That's a great touch. One chauffeur to drive and, and one chauffeur to be snide to Gladstone. You know, it occurs to me, Warren, it would be interesting to kind of keep some kind of scorecard for these Donald Gladstone stories, because in my memory, Gladstone, one of them probably comes out ahead about 50 percent of the time. But I don't know. Maybe Donald does beat the Gladstone luck more than I am think. So, like, yeah, in race to the South Seas. Mm-hmm. He ended up on top. Um, in luck of the North, they they both came out well, but ultimately Donald came out with the bigger prize. That's right. In this one, again, we've got them both coming out well, but Donald is coming out ahead. Um, so Donald, in the adventure length ones, at least, is so far coming out more often <laughs> than not. I'm We're- gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do that research
1: for you. <laughs> I I'm I'm gonna go take a look and see where uh, the scorecard ends up on that. That sounds like fun.
0: I'd, I'd appreciate that.
1: One comment I wanted to make on this last panel, and, and for the Barks collector out there, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Mark, but there is a there was a model built of this card, which was sold at auction last year. Oh, my
0: gosh. It. No, I
1: haven't. You, it you... was about... Four and a half feet long, completely done in detail. It's sold for thousands of dollars. Uh, it is in the hands of a collector. And know uh, if you point that out in your in in your addition to the Barks page on on Facebook, that uh, that individual who owns this will probably put the picture up there. It's a oh
0: my gosh!
1: It's an amazing piece of. Uh, sculpted (laughs) one-of-a-kind artwork that I could not I could not even begin even looking at to add to my collection but someone has one and I think there's only one it is fantastic yeah that sounds great
0: that sounds hilarious you'll if there is an existing picture you'll have to point it out to me but but yeah maybe they'll maybe that individual will come out of the woodwork to (laughs) to share more because that that does sound like a great little piece of of ephemera Awesome. So this this is definitely a fun one to revisit. What's your overall impression, Warren? Well, again, I'll, I'll go back to saying that I think Barks was in a really good
1: mood when he was writing this. I think he wanted to be playful. Uh, he, he introduced yet another mythical character like he's done in so many of his stories. He has the nephews come out on top. I kind of said, Here, here's what things that he introduced and reinforced. He introduced, Scrooge has a zoo, and Scrooge has this country estate that's enormous. Uh, you see a subservient Donald, uh, the classic subservient Donald with a greed streak in him. Uh, you see a classic Gladstone who's lazy, lucky, devious, greedy, lucky again, and then once and for all outdone by Donald. Uh, the boys, as usual, are always a step ahead in the story and become the heroes. In this case, Hugh we really stood out which was nice and uh, and the sheer extravagance of the final panel it's it just he barks having a good time as far as the story goes i agree i think the adventure part was rushed but i think the adventure part was on par with the rest of the story it wasn't the it wasn't the primary focus it was it was not about going to the Himalayas, because I did point out earlier in my notes that he's traveling to other parts of the world, and you know where I would have liked to have seen a few splash panels introducing that plane coming into the Himalayas. He decided to hold back and keep those panels relatively the same size, and then give us that car at the end in the splash panel. But it's a good story. I wouldn't call it a great story, uh, but it's a good story, and I and I like I like the fact that we had all the characters in there. Uh, scrooge in a supporting role i will say, still say and uh donald coming out on top with the help of his loving nephews
0: yeah i i totally agree these are excellent points i think you nailed it right the adventure is kind of deliberately an afterthought in this one. not not an afterthought but it's not the main point the the antics around it are the main point and and we have so many of these adventure stories that that is kind of a nice change of pace you know i i agree with you completely this one is a this is a very good story um it's not one of his like greats to me it, no. it's it's a very capable just solid example of a good barks adventure story um you know this did come in his very like this very fertile period where people will describe it as his golden age mm-hmm. i don't think it stands up with a lot of those golden age ones but it just because this period is so fertile and so strong and it does have some really great elements you know the the nice comedic setup the really good callbacks um this really interesting hook of a of a dangerous unicorn and that comedic payoff at the end there are a few things that elevate it past kind of your average bark story yeah so I agree I, I, with that. I enjoy this. I don't think it is as good as the community seems to think. I don't know if you looked on on Indux. I didn't
1: tell me what the community is rating this story.
0: Yeah, so this this is very highly rated, right? This has an eight point one, and and really anything in the 8.0 and above. I kind of I think it was Land of the Totem poles where I kind of made that realize that's kind of the dividing line for. I think the, it
1: was yeah, it was our episode of Luck of the North. When oh we...
0: yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, that's. The that was, point, that was
1: an 8 that was an 8.0 i think and an 8.1 but i i will put luck of the north and maybe i'm a little biased but i will put that above this story because in a sheer unfolding of the adventure and the character development but uh I, yeah Mark, i agree i, I agree yeah. you know,
0: i th- i think luck of the north really stands out as as one of the like almost all time bests, and it's really elevated by that like sequence of the the psychological trauma this one to me is very fun, but 8.1 out of 10 is good for 24th out of all of the stories on on Indux, all 41,000. And again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to come down too hard on this because this is a very, very good, solid story. But I don't see anything about it that like elevates it to that sort of rarefied air. Yeah, I don't think it's even in the 24 best, um, you know, Carl Barks adventure length stories. Well, I mean, I don't think there, there probably aren't any non-Barks stories ahead of it at at that point.
1: I'd like to hear what the, what the listeners think too. Uh, it'd be great to get some feedback on this because I, I would agree with you. I, I I don't put it in the top tier. It's, it's clever. It's fun. I said before, it's whimsical. It's just, it, it was a fun story. I do, I will say after a read and even today, um, I'm, I'm, Pleased with highlighting Huey, one of the nephews. You yeah. rarely see that, and uh, when you see that pay off um, as a good deed back then, I think it was showing some good values in honesty. And I and I think for that reason, I think it's an important story to to take a lesson from. <laughs> but then of course the large car is just <laughs> another another classic turn. Yeah, fun story. Thank you.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. And, and I do, I always find, you know, reading these in an interactive way and and getting someone else's take on it, I and, and thinking about these so deeply, I always find these things to really appreciate about these, which is so cool. But yeah, it's, it's a very good one. It definitely has a little bit of archaic stuff that hasn't held up very well. Just thinking about other re- references, there are no lithos for this one, right? Not that I'm aware of. There's and, plenty of, of sequences that could, yeah. could have been made into a really cool litho, but, you know, he wasn't a machine. No. This one does get referenced in, so I, I think I'd mentioned that there's a Don Rosa. I've decided to think of the Don Rosa sequels in kind of two categories, right? There are the true sequels, and there are the riff sequels, where he's kind of riffing on a Bark story, and he maybe refers to it. So uh, one of the first first Rosa stories I ever read was The Crocodile Collector. Oh, sure. And that one was fun. I think it was based on a cover that Barks did for a story that wasn't his.
1: Uh, there was a there was a uh, a Dell comic, uh, the Crocodile Collector, which was a cover only for Barks. I, yeah, I'll be honest with you, I kind of I steered away from the stories written by the other whoever wrote it. I just I don't even have that one in my collection.
0: Yeah, I, I don't gather that it's memorable for anything but but being Barks the cover. <laughs> but but I loved Don Rosa's follow up, and I I like that it's not one of those stories where Rosa is really following the same story beats because he has a few that I nonetheless really like where, you know, it's a little bit revisiting it too much. Like we recently did the episode for Super Snooper and Super Snooper Strikes Again or whatever it was called was not one of my favorite Rosa stories, still a lot to love. Right. But I loved The Crocodile Collector as one of Rosa's first sort of barks follow-ups. Um, so, so that's neat that, that, the you know, we do see Uni the Unicorn again mm-hmm. in yep. that one, even if briefly. I'm, I'm looking forward to rereading that one at some point soon. Do we see the
1: Ganoof again in any comic?
0: That's what I was going to ask you. Well, Rosa really cranks it up to 11, as I recall, where <laughs> when we return to the zoo, there's the good that I think there's a whole family of them and there's a bunch of other like <laughs> hilarious and, and silly creatures. I found a wiki page that referenced other stories. There have been a lot of apparently duck comics that have been sequels or follow-ups to this. So there's a story by Francois Cortegiani and Santiago Barreras, Return to Shangri-La. That's a direct sequel from 2008. Trial of the Unicorn. I'm intrigued by this one, which has a lot of callbacks to this story. And it's a straight up sequel. And then this one mentions that Billion Dollar Safari is a later Scrooge one. Uh, a later bark story that it's not a sequel but it kind of is another of these like Donald and Gladstone looking for a fantastical creature. That that's a fun one. I won't get to that for a bit, but I like that one for yeah. uh, later barks. I so, like how
1: this story can act as motivation for other storytellers to build on, especially Don Rosa when he did. A, it, it it really acts as a great seed for more imaginative storytelling and and I think if anything this this story can be credited for that. I don't, yeah.
0: And and I um recall that I read The Crocodile Collector first, so that this one kind of closed that circle for me when I read it a few months later. So, so that is, do do you have any additional thoughts before we wrap it up? No, I'll I'll just go back to one comment
1: I made earlier, and that was um, that little plot hole bothered the heck out of me. (laughs) But you made a really good point about exposing the story and, and any motivation behind uh, Barks' decision to to wait until letting Donald know. But the more I read about it, and the more I think about it, rather, I, I like I like how the story unfolded and how they wanted to appear as the uh, the deliverer of good news. And of course, they did it on top of the fake unicorn horse. It was just a, a beautiful storytelling in that area, though. But no, it's a good story, fun, fun to read. I, I enjoyed it.
0: Awesome. I think my only final thoughts is that, You know, I I don't really get to because this is an auditory medium. I would love if I were making a YouTube video of this, I would really highlight some of those visual background gags in this one because they're, oh. they're a lot of fun. That might be one of the reasons that this lands well for a lot of people. But, but like you said, if anyone would like to reach out and, and kind of take the position that, yeah, this is a top 25 Barks and, and Disney comic story, by all means, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at uh, Barks Remarks at gmail.com or, or on the Barks Remarks. Mark's Facebook page. As always, I'm I'm very grateful for the listenership. You know, we're we're slowly but steadily building an audience and I I love interacting and engaging with the Barks and Duck fans and you know getting to getting to know you through this process and, and the other people that I'm getting to meet has been a real joy, Warren. So I'm I'm really grateful for getting to do this.
1: Um thank you, Mark. And again, um I the, the community that that you've rejuvenated with these your podcasts. Cast and the the chronology of these stories and, and having us be able to all of us that are helping you wow what a what a what a treasure uh, a new a new archive of research and uh, great listening
0: I appreciate that it's it's a lot of fun so I look forward to uh, introducing a, a new guest host next week in um, the the really classic and creepy story. In ancient Persia. (laughs) And I look forward to having, having you back on again in the near future, Warren. Looking forward to it.
1: Thank you very much, Mark.